Hello and welcome back to our listeners. I am Rosen Boy and I'm here with my co-host Patrick Fitzmaurice and today we are interviewing Mahul Kapadia on driving change in the motorsports industry. And welcome from me as well. This is Patrick Fitzmaurice, and we are going to have a fabulous conversation today as we continue our journey and our exploration of what makes great change activators and people who deal with disruptors. So, Raz, I'm really excited about the conversation we're about to have. Great. So for our listeners, Mahul is the ex-MD of Tata Communications' very exciting Formula One business. And today he is the COO of Motorsport Network. Mahul, we are very excited to have you with us today. I know you have a very long history in motorsport um, and firsthand experience of the massive changes that the sport has gone through over the last 10 years. Yeah, great to be here. And uh, it's exciting, right? Anytime you look at sports and especially the change that's happened with technology over the last few years has been at an absolute incredible pace. Yes, and I know our listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy hearing about uh, how instrumental you have been in this very, very exciting space. So without further ado, um, I'm going to jump in and ask you, what are the biggest changes that you have seen um, in the sports industry over the last, say, eight to 10 years? Kind of, if you look at the sports industry, right, and, and, and in some sense, live sports is now the true frontier of content. And fundamental change has been the consumption habits, where earlier a lot of linear, laid-back consumption used to happen. Uh, Now the consumption of sports has really moved to an an absolute 24 by 7, not just watching it when it is live, but a lot of bite-sized content. So that's one fundamental change. And the other is the interactivity. The interactivity and access to the personalities, access to the teams has just been incredible, right? I mean, uh, if you just saw yesterday, Liverpool got crowned as uh, uh, champions of Premier League. And even without fans actually being in the stadium, the amount of engagement that that celebration drove was fabulous. So Mm. I I think the fundamental shift in terms of the audience and the interactivity uh, have, have led to a lot of change in sport. Yeah, so that really brings in the, the topic of technology, I suppose. Where have you seen and, and maybe, um, you know, give us a little bit of color on, on the time, you know, where you led the Formula One business? I mean, the technology impact must have just been really the driving force behind a lot of that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, in Formula One, if you think of it, uh, the technology that goes in cars has been always been on leading edge, bleeding edge. and But when it came to the way uh, the sport got presented back to fans and global audiences, uh, we've seen a sea change, right? So uh, when I was at Tata and we joined that in 2012, uh, and along with you, Ross, uh, when we started doing that in 2012, uh, fundamentally, right from the base connectivity, to how they would actually then look at building their whole content package, taking it to fans, has just completely changed. So the way it is now created, the way it is consumed, the way it is distributed, and and add a layer of data to it, uh, has meant that we are now experiencing the sport in in a completely transformative ways. 
whether it is uh, the capture of the content using camera technologies and things like that. But more importantly, the distribution uh, has significantly changed. I'm curious, Mihul, you know, as you've, have you kind of pioneered a lot of this work and driven this change? Um, you know, you could argue motorsports is not ripe for technology change or not ripe for technology enabled user experience enhancements. And I suspect at some points it might've been a challenge to kind of help drive that industry to adopt new things and to put things into, into play in terms of how to cover the sport, how to bring the sport to consumers. Um, I'm curious if, you know, what you what you learned as you tried to help the, the, the sport overall really migrate using technology in new ways. Cause I imagine there had to be some reluctance. Uh, there would be. And, and actually, if you think of it, it, it a lot boils down to the commercial model that a sport has, right? So when your revenue model is very linked to um, uh, a particular format, so especially if you look at in the case of Formula One, very linked to broadcasters paying for getting rights to show it live, uh, how do you translate it to the whole digital medium where monetizing it is a completely different challenge, right? Uh, and, and hence, uh, there, there becomes an inherent resistance and not because people may not want to adopt technology, but are the commercial models there to be able to be exploited? So absolutely, that, that became one of the barriers. But uh, I think the change really got driven with the fact as to how do audiences want to then engage. Uh, F1 and motorsport, if you see, is really a sport where very few people can really participate. In Formula 1, there are only 20 drivers, right? But there are half a billion fans out there who can never really take part in it. And that's where I feel that technology and, and the essence that you could use technology to let people experience it, be part of what a driver goes through or be part of what a team goes through in terms of creating the racing action, um, is why we finally managed to get that transition done, right? Uh, it's like, think of it, uh, when a driver is driving and, and you can imagine driving at 300 kilometers per hour, uh, the ability to experience uh, what's happening, even in terms of the way they're holding their steering wheel to what's happening to their entire car in terms of that data, uh, that's what transforms the experience for a viewer. Uh, if you can't be act actually at a racetrack. So that's where evolving, building those models, doing a lot of innovation tests, right? Whether how do you use uh, virtual reality or augmented reality to actually see how this could evolve as an experience uh, uh, were various steps that we took, which really then helped uh, engage with the rights holder, with the sport to see how to change it. Yeah, and you said earlier that, that that I kind of grabbed, you know, the the comment you made earlier. It's about how people consume the sport has changed, and that's true for all sport, I, I imagine. Um, but it's also about the requirement for the consumers to want more interactivity, to want to be able to engage in a multifaceted way. And, uh, um, you know, and then you kind of mentioned something there about how you guys actually did some testing to be able to make that occur, to try to unlock how to apply technology. And so I'd love to kind of let you talk a little bit about, about that. It's kind of, how did you figure out where are the spaces that we need to test? And how did you actually kind of advocate for these changes as you built this knowledge base about where the experience and where the interactivity could really be applied? Uh, yeah, and one of the f 
fundamental things we did was crowdsourcing actually, right? So mm. we built a, a platform called the Innovation Prize, which allowed us to engage with true fans who understand the sport and exactly to your point, Patrick, that the, the user, the consumer is the key here, right? There is enough and more technology available now and there is always new technology coming in, but it's about understanding that consumer aspect. So running an innovation prize, running a concept of doing a proof of concept every year with the new stuff that comes in, uh, always brought it alive, right? So for example, uh, testing 360 degree video. Now, 360 degree video sounds exciting that, oh, okay, I can look at the sport in that form. But imagine when your car is going that fast, uh, will you even as a consumer be able to flip your smartphone to look at that 360 degree uh, view in that sense, right? So understanding how that behavior would be is key. And I think that goes for any sport. We, we, we did some work even around golf. And there we figured out that actually looking at 360 degree video might be the most useful for the uh, referee in terms of taking any decisions as needed uh, rather than really even the, uh, the fans per se. So it's about understanding the intersection of the consumer need, the technology, and what makes your sport special is where you triangulate to figure out the sweet spot. Mm, that's perfect. Thank you. That's really insightful. And Mahul, I think it's interesting, you know, we're talking about the, the consumers and the viewers now, um, but I think there's such an interesting angle on the inside, you know, when we brought Formula One, uh, all the technology, you know, the, the the whole sponsorship and relationship deal was the official technology provider for Formula One. And I would love you to just share with our listeners a little bit around what was the technology that was brought to Formula One. You know, in, in days gone by, uh, the riders used to have to do their practice laps and then they came into the pit and then all the data was assessed. But then when Tata came in and and brought all that technology, that all changed because that live data was now coming from the car in real time back to the engine room. So the changes were being made while the practice laps were going on. And I think that's really driven a lot of then what the consumer got to experience. So tell us a little bit about the change on the inside of the Formula One business that the technology allowed for then, you know, the consumer to, to have this real-time experience. Yeah, that's a great point, Roz. And, and if we look at it uh, as almost like an ecosystem, right? So if you look at Formula One as an ecosystem, uh, there are three key constituents. Uh, there is, of course, uh, Formula One and FIA who are running the sport, right? So they need to be able to uh, produce the content. They need to be able to uh, conduct the event itself. Then there are the teams who are participating in it. And then there are the broadcasters and media providers who have to take the content globally. And as you look at changing and as you look at implementing technology, it's important to look at all those constituents and building it. So for example, if you look at the teams and to the point that you were making, in real time, each car has about 150 to 200 sensors, which are generating thousands of data points every second, right? Now, earlier, all these data points would get collected and then after a session would get done, uh, the data would then, when the car came into the garage, is when they would plug in the car and then the data would come back into the factories 
and they would analyze, they would figure out that you should uh, be breaking in this particular way, your lap time should be like this, or you should come in for a tire change at so-and-so point. Uh, I think by introducing the, the technology of real-time data connectivity back to the factories and into the cars and the racetrack, uh, the transformation that could get driven was really that now actually when the practice sessions are on, and if you know the Formula One format, there are three practice sessions which happen over Friday and Saturday, then there is qualifying on Saturday, and then you actually do the race on Sunday, right? So what you're able to now do during the practice, practice sessions is in real time get the ability of all the tuning of the car, about the temperature conditions, about the weather conditions, about whether the racetrack has changed or not, and all of that, you're then able to feedback both to the team at the racetrack and into the driver in terms of what you can do. I mean, I, I remember a little uh, uh, anecdote from way back when, when Nico Rosberg used to be the driver at one of the drivers at the Mercedes team that we were working with. And um, uh, it, using that real-time data, they could actually tell Nico that when you are taking that particular turn number XYZ, turn a little bit more towards your right, and actually you will save one-tenth of a second. And mm. it's that sophistication in real time to be able to do, uh, which actually transforms the sport, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it is a, every little millisecond that counts then towards the sport. Yeah, and I think one of the, the the interesting things as well, talking about anecdotes, is I remember speaking to uh, the head engineer who said on the topic of change that it's just transformed my team's life for, you know, 15 years. My team have been at every race. They've traveled the world. They've been on the ground at every race. And now my team can do the stuff from the comfort of their lounge. Now my team's having weekends with their families because we are getting this data from a technology point of view, virtually. So, you know, there was just such a massive shift in the way the Formula One team operated, you know, in terms of managing people and bringing a work-life balance, you know, not only to mention, as you say, you're trying to cut off one millisecond off a lap, you know, for the drivers. So, you know, I think there's just so many interesting things there. And if we look at, I, I suppose, another thing we're going into now is world, world events, you know, um, now we don't have the audience in the stands anymore. So this change is becoming more and more critical given given world events. How are you guys at the Motorsport Network dealing with that shift in, in audience consumption? You know, and that's remarkable, right? And, and, and I think to your point, as events now happen closed doors, um, different formats of sports are needing to adapt differently, right? So a uh, football is experimenting with things like introducing uh, additional audience sound and noise uh, so that you still feel that there is a bit of an environment uh, to the whole atmosphere, to the whole uh, thing happening uh, while a football game is on. Whereas us, uh, sports like Formula One uh, are looking at uh, how do you redimension and and do that much more around the surrounds right so the radio transmissions which are happening between drivers and the teams or adding and embedding that much more data uh, which is about performance or competitive data between different cars etc coming in as graphics 
uh, to change the way the sport comes in. And and if you look at media companies like Motorsport Network, when we are covering the sport now through our editorial teams uh, globally, uh, giving access to our editorial teams to that data in a different form and shape because they can't be at the racetrack, uh, how do they still give insights which you and me as readers then uh, get access to uh, ha has been significantly different, right? Uh, and, and I feel in some sense, uh, all the work, and especially if you look at Formula One that, that has been done over the years, has helped it to be ready for these kind of eventualities, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so much of remote production can happen. Uh, so much of remote fan engagement can happen. So I, I think technology has just actually helped sport become that much more accessible even in these uh, difficult times. There's so much there. I, you, if you could see my desk right now, Mahul, there's notes everywhere on different things you've said. So I, I love it. There's two in particular that I want to drill in if you're up for it. Um, one is kind of around, and I hate the term, and it's kind of gone away, and I'm kind of glad it has, is this notion of big data, right? So you mentioned data earlier. Um, and, you know, the richness of being able to capture real-time data and apply real-time data either to improve performance and or to deliver a different type of experience to an end user. And I love that. And I, I, I almost listening to you talk your the, because of the nature of, of formula one and you know, how you can focus on that. It, it's so scalable what you're talking about. And I'm flashing back to a, a conference I was presenting at a couple of years ago uh, around retailers and the world of retail. And um, I happened to be speaking after the CMO of IBM at the time. And, you know, she kind of put up this, formula that they had and said, there's four things that are going to, they're going to fundamentally change the world of retail and commerce. And she talked about cloud computing. She talked about artificial intelligence, machine learning as the second. She talked about uh, blockchain as a transactional piece to it. And she talked about internet of things. And as I'm listening to you talk, you know, you guys have dealt with internet of things. The car is not just a car. It's producing all of these live streams of data. We got to get those in the cloud. We've got to have real time processing. So as you think about Formula One, one of my fascinating topics is like, how do you scale that to other businesses? And what do you see other businesses doing to apply that model in the ecosystem of Formula One? But it seems to me it's widely scalable to other places. And I don't know if you have perspectives on who's doing that or what makes success when you take take that and try to scale it to different industries and different spaces. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, right, Patrick? If you look at it, uh... What, what has happened is that, let's, let's start with FN itself. In some sense, for the last five years now, uh, Lewis Hamilton, the Mercedes team, they've essentially been winning, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm a big fan of theirs. So uh, if you look at it now, has it made the sport less interesting? Actually, if you ask me, no, because what it has done is that even while you may kind of know that, you know what, this race will be won by... Lewis, because he started off strong, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of data and insights has meant that it has created different conversation topics and interest areas for fans, right? So you no longer just about the binary of who's going to win or lose. Right. It's actually the whole interest around performance, the interest around how somebody could... Uh, be able to overtake in a different way. Somebody actually is going to be able to change tires at a different point and still earn more points. So I, I feel a little bit of that. And if you look at 
even the younger generation coming in, uh, a lot of the their societal norms are not just about winning or losing, right? right? It, it's about the experience. And what data, and while we don't use the word big data, it is, I'm glad we don't use that in common, <laughs> but if you look at it, what it does is <laughs> it, 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 it is making the experience better. And that's what I feel is what other businesses have to now understand and learn. And shopping experiences are changing because of that. And it's not just about the cheapest deal, but about convenience at a different way, being able to compare, whether it is then ticketing businesses, right? Where uh, earlier it could be just about buy the cheapest uh, uh, ticket or on a plane, now it is a lot more about what else can I create as experiences around it, knowing you as a consumer. Uh, if you look at even banking experiences which are happening and, and, and hence the rise of all these non-high street banks. So kind of data and intelligence about the consumer is helping us create offerings which are more experiential for which then people are willing to pay a certain premium. Yeah, and that totally drove into this. And so you actually answered my second area that I was kind of getting my head around is, you know, this imperative to rethink experience. And and I, I think in the times that we're in coming out of hopefully a COVID-19 centric world and all of the economic impact that that's caused and all of the disruption that's created to almost every industry, um, people are going to come back and demand different experiences as they enter that marketplace. And I love how you said it. It's, you know, it's going to be a combination of data to understand them and leveraging technology to kind of deliver a new and renewed experience. And so I, it's, it's a fabulous point and I really appreciate you making it. Yeah. And it's interesting because we're in this time now where, you know, we know we're going to come out in a different world, you know, with the, the pandemic at the moment and everyone, worries and panics about the future but if history has shown us it's these big world events that really change thinking um, and Patrick as you and Mahul were talking about this you know fan experience it really is about the immersive experience so while we all worried you know we can't get to a live event or we can't see the sport um, the immersiveness of it is in the background growing so much you know Mahul I know even with Formula One now the fans have got more access to data so the fans are seeing on screen a lot of the data they never used to, which goes to your point about them having different conversations. So it is going to be interesting. I suppose from a revenue perspective, there's a big worry because tickets sell money and are, are revenue generators. But from a fan perspective, you know, is this period in time the worst thing or, or is a lot of new, exciting uh changes in in fan engagement as you say are going to come out i mean what are you seeing again from the back end you you're looking at the sports teams you're looking at the drivers you're looking at the uh the viewers you know they've all got different agendas and and revenue plays a big role um you know we touched on uh, earlier a little bit about what the drivers are doing you know what are they doing now that the world is changing to get more engaged off the track with their fans yeah, and, 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 and Ross, to that point, I mean, if you look at the transition to esports, right? And um, so a, a lot when, when, when the calendar hadn't yet started off and all, a lot of the drivers switched, I think the younger lot especially, switched into esports. That's the first time when fans could actually see the face of the driver while driving. 
otherwise you always saw the helmet mm. now that little change of looking at a driver even if he's seated on a, a, a on his driving seat at home but doing that driving action and going on for 90 minutes at a race track that has been transformational in terms of the younger fans wanting to come into the sport because it's made it more personable right it's like and some of these drivers have really like for example Lando Norris and Charles Leclerc they they have created a generational shift of access to their fans to themselves where they actually position specific cameras which was looking at what they were doing uh, uh while they were actually racing so and and that will create more revenue streams now how it gets monetized are there platforms in which it gets monetized will at some stage people and commercial partners then figure out a way to rather than sponsoring the helmet sponsoring something else uh, those models will evolve uh, but uh, to your point the, this is leading to more innovation now mm. yeah we're seeing this even in like the music space you know i think live concerts live sports events you know if you look at the music industry for example revenue came from selling records once upon a time then cd's then it went to free streaming so then the revenue went to shows and now the shows are being cut off but you're seeing uh, artists getting into 3D gaming where they're actually doing their live concerts in gaming you know bringing in new audiences these younger audiences that are not attuned to that kind of music per se so i think the world of sports is just so exciting and i'm not saying you you know the thrill of the crowd in certain sports like football and rugby you know i don't think you can ever replace that but it is just such an exciting space ahead of us just to see how it's all going to to pan out right yeah and it's creating options right the the way i look at it is that the the physical experience at least personally and this is my absolute personal view that i don't think the physical experience will ever go away we all as as human beings will need that physical experience and actually when you do end up going to a race track or a football match it's much more than actually watching the race or watching the match it's it's a lot beyond that and i feel that that will come back at the right point and it will still continue to be important but what the innovation and the technology intersection has shown is that we can make it that much more accessible we can change from we can change our re- revenue models we can look at different audiences and we can start catering to different needs in a different form and shape and, and that's where sports which are able to do it will 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 really succeed much more i mean another example is formula e right uh so if you see one of the things about a racing series is that they will try and do the races at different venues because then your temperature conditions change your your circuit conditions change your layout changes so it adds a lot of variability to the sport right uh, unlike in football where a football pitch is a football pitch and the maximum change you can do is home and away right mm-hmm. uh, but in motorsport typically you go to different race locations because you add a lot of variables to it now taking that circus along different countries is so difficult so formula e is actually going to do in august six races back to back in one city of berlin wow right but they are now having to figure out can they change the track formation there can they start 
the races in different forms and shape. And, and it's the first time they're going to do it. But if they manage to successfully now create innovation around it, they will completely change the cost model of hosting races or mm. the amount of back-to-back -back content that you could produce. And that would be a massive game changer. There is so much potential for innovation across a lot of spaces, given the disruption that's happening, but it requires a bunch of things. So I'm, I'm going to dig into the how a little bit. Um, you know, it requires people like you, which is why I, I get excited about this series that Raz and I are doing and talking to great expert people who have, who have driven change because we learn so much. And, you know, you have, your, your career has been so successful um, in so many different ways. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, how do you bring people along? Like, is there, is there one thing in your career that you think helped you be better at leading teams through these time of change? Because as we look at the next couple of years in sports, but in retail and any kind of business environment, there's this potential for disruption and there's a potential for innovation, but not every leader sees it that way, right? They, they kind of view my operational world is now blown up and oh my God, what was me? Um, but people like you embrace that, right? And so is there one thing that, you know, in your career you think has helped you be a better uh, leader and executive at helping teams make sense of disruption and drive change? See, that's a great point, right? And actually, if you look at it, in a general sense, we would say it's always about can we create a common purpose for the team? right? Can we get them to share into a common vision? And I think fundamentally, that is the first step that is needed. But I, I do believe that true change comes with a certain conviction uh, that you as a leader bring to the table. So while you create a common purpose, do you have the conviction to then take the risk? Mm. And that together then probably creates that team spirit, which helps you drive change, is, is what I feel. And Mahal, what sort of culture do you think is the right culture to drive in a space of a rapid change? So in motorsports, I mean, we've just spoken about a few examples where we could sit here for hours. Um, and it's just been such a fast transition, you know, it's been fast for the teams, your team internally, you know, how, what is the culture you think is important when you as a marketing lead, as a business lead, you know, you've got your conviction, but obviously there's, there needs to be a culture. What sort of culture keeps people open to change and to experimenting and to taking risks? Two aspects, I would say, right? One is, one is being completely outcome driven. So again, if we take the motorsport uh, example, uh, there is a performance review of the team which happens 20 times a year and in full public view, right? So what mm -hmm. you do as an outcome really is, is what gives a sense of purpose. So even a team which is then finishing fifth on the grid but was seventh last year on the grid can see the outcome that they are able to drive and the incremental growth that they're able to uh, uh, continuously uh, build, right? I think the other really in the culture is that ability to also allow for that failure, right? And 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 I don't know. Again, this is not a new word about let there be no fear of failure, etc. But this is about can you can you handle it in public? Right. And that's what I've passionately learned from Formula One and the experience of being there, that both your success and failure 
are seen, they are evident. You can actually look at it 20 times a year. And hence, if you build that culture which says that whether I succeed or I fail, I'll regroup together to understand how I could have improved uh, is what then drives ongoing continuous success, right? So even a team that finishes on the podium on Sunday regroups on Monday to figure out and say, you know, what are the things that we could have done differently? Mm. So that's the culture that I would say uh, should be built even in corporates, you know, as they look at how to succeed. And just to build on that, one of the one of the things that comes out of sports, right? And and a lot of this conversation is making me think back to uh, the book Moneyball a couple of years ago, which was I think it was Michael Lewis who dug into the sport of baseball and the team. I think it was the Oakland A's uh, who really kind of harnessed all of this data to manage an entire professional baseball team in the United States based on data, right? And really get the metrics right beyond just the final score, but all of those pieces. Um, so that conversation from sports takes me to the business side, which you said earlier, which is what is the commercial model, which is what are KPIs, right? Like what are the key performance indicators that business lives and breathes and operates on? And in times of change, um, you almost need to change the KPIs, right? You need to start thinking differently. So I'm really curious that this, the translating the sports analogy, which have very hard and fast metrics, and we can break down the numbers into sub numbers, and we can measure a whole bunch of little dynamics. Business doesn't tend to have that accurate KPIs. As you think about reinventing experience, was there any learnings on the commercial model side that you said, you know, these are what made make us successful because we started to look at more granular key performance indicators or metrics that helped us get people focused on the right things. Yeah, and, and Patrick, if you kind of look at it, you could measure things in, in three different layers or levels, right? A lot of organizations end up measuring activity. Yes. So did I do so many calls? Did I actually have so many events or did we actually produce so much? So if you see a lot of the matrix uh, and across the team, when you look at it, and especially as you go deeper into the organization, tend to be about measuring activity. But how do you change that from activity to output and from output to impact and then aligning the KPIs, so to say, that everybody in the organization understands the linkage between activity to output to impact uh, is what I believe is critical. And the organizations which are getting it right, the teams which are uh, functional groups, et cetera, which are getting that right, uh, because the easiest to measure is activity, right? And the most difficult to measure is actually impact. Uh, but getting that right is probably a key to uh, knowing whether you're meeting your KPIs. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and will you touch on this whole um, element of, of vulnerability in a way. Um, and that is, you know, not being afraid to fail, not being afraid to be exposed. I think that's something that's very hard for people um, because, you know, you're always being accountable and, you know, nobody wants to lose their job and they don't want to look incompetent. So what is your advice or, or insight, you know, when, you, when you've got teams in, in today's world, which is so fast. And as you say, you've got to keep going. You've got to try things. You've got to be okay with failure. Managers, don't you think managers need to change the way they manage people? Because in days gone by, 
failure is not really seen as something that happens. If you're failing all the time, you're incompetent. But now it's this different world where you almost want people to, to, as you say, have successes and failures because it shows they're trying, they're inquisitive. Um, you know, how, if you look at, you know, many, many large companies, they failed many times before they became successful. So what would your advice be to a manager to change the way they manage in order to breed this culture of um, it is okay to let your team fail sometimes because that's part of the, the growth and the success story. Yeah, and, and, and to that point, Ros, it's about, again, it's not, a, to me, not what you do when you succeed or fail, but what you do post that, right? So you mm-hmm. might have had some formula to succeed, that may not always stay. You might have had some formula which led to failure. That may not always remain the same. So the ability of managers to adapt, and which is why you know it's fabulous that you guys are doing this thing on change cultivators, because I think the ability to continuously change uh, and not sit on a formula that you believe has helped you succeed till now is the key for managers. Because I think one of the things that does happen with managers is that if there is a certain formula which has started working for you in one form and shape, uh, people get into that zone that, okay, that's how I'll see it succeed in future as well. And, mm. and that's when then the whole change cycle gets broken. Yeah. And I suppose also bringing in different geographies. I mean, you know, all of us on this this call have managed very, very diverse and different geographies. So I suppose the cultural aspect also comes in, you know, because culture plays a big role in, you know, how you are seen, um, uh, you know, publicly versus, as you say, you know, what you're doing and what the output is. So are you seeing, um, you know, big changes, uh, you know, from a geographic point of view in mindset around this? No, absolutely. And I think that's where that whole diversity uh, conversation that that's happening so, so much and diversity in all forms and shapes, uh, geographical diversity, cultural diversity, experiences diversity, right? So, which is why, you know, sometimes if I ever get asked that, you know, what is that one book that you feel which you like, which, which has showed you what changes or what is the one speaker or something? And I... I always feel that rather than one, it is, can I look at 10 different diverse aspects to something, right? So actually, if you look at how the travel industry is working, that might really help you even do something in telecom. Or if you look at what telecom is doing and see how it could go and impact uh, uh, some other industry. So I, th- I think it's it's about welcoming that diversity of thought uh, is what really helps. And seeking it out. And I, I think one of the things that I'm threading through a lot of your your comments um, is, you know, just your style and your mindset of not getting stuck in a standard operational environment, but seeking out diversities either across different industries or through different people and, and kind of lifting and applying and lifting and applying, or at least using, and I, the way I just wrote that down is seek out 10 different perspectives on the problem I'm trying to solve, right? Like don't get locked into one, but are there 10 different ways that I should be thinking about this as I try to go through problem solving? So um, I think that's really interesting that you said that. I don't know if there's an example that, you know, you've had somewhere in your 
your career, which is like the reason we were successful is because we did stop and look at eight or 10 or something perspectives. And it actually allowed us to come up with a different solution to the disruption than we normally would. So I'm kind of putting you on the spot there to see if there's something that just jumps out that you would go, that's a good example for our listeners of not getting locked into one point of view or one perspective, but really being dynamic and open to understanding different perspectives applied to the current situation that we're trying to solve. I think one of, uh, let's let's look at Formula One and what we uh, did with them. The, at a certain point, um, the whole need for, as they were looking at buying more services around the technology side and looking at sprucing up their production, et cetera, uh, started coming in from a cost angle, right? It was really their uh, finance department on their back trying to figure out how can you save cost. And, and if you see a lot of innovation, I feel normally comes from there. When, when your resources get constrained, uh, suddenly you become more innovative about what you could do. Uh, <laughs> but what it led to really is, is it's that what sparked for us a thought to actually build that crowd innovation thing uh, which was then became a marketing idea, which finally translated into a technology shift uh, that we did for them. So what kind of started in the finance group, went to the marketing team, went to the to the technology group, uh, was a great way of saying that if there was an openness to look at the problem, not just from a money standpoint, but a value add standpoint, uh, we could solve it differently. Nice. Very, very, very insightful. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you, Mahul. So it really is about that openness to change. Um, you know, one thing that worked yesterday is not necessarily going to work um, tomorrow. And, and, you know, just keep experimenting and not withstanding really the importance of technology and change, especially in the, the sports industry. So Mahul, thank you so much for joining us today. I know our listeners are just going to love this conversation. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. I really enjoyed this and thank you so much for having me.